Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Today is the first day of my favorite season of the year, I guess. First day of fall today. Although I find as I get older, I like fall less, only because I know winter is coming. Uh, But God is good. Um, You know, not long ago... I read a news story that I found disturbingly tragic, and maybe, maybe some of you heard about this story as well. Um, 38-year-old woman named Melissa Moyer, she's pictured here on your right, uh, was in Maine, the state of Maine, to visit her friend Amy Steiner, who was 37 years old and five months pregnant at the time. And as the two friends reconnected, they decided to go hiking at uh, Roquet Bluffs State Park in Maine. And as that day went on, a storm moved in, and the ladies actually got lost while they were hiking. And so as it began to get darker, uh, Melissa Moyer phoned authorities, and thankfully the authorities were able to find the women relatively quickly, and they returned the women to their vehicle, their minivan, which was parked in the parking lot on the grounds of the state park. As it turns out, uh, the women began to head for home in dark, rainy, very foggy conditions, and they turned onto a road by mistake that actually ended up leading to a boat ramp that goes right into the ocean, right into the water. And uh, because they got disoriented and didn't know where they were, they drove their minivan right off of the boat landing into the water. Uh, It's estimated that they didn't even hit the brakes before they hit the water. And so authorities received a 911 call minutes later uh, from Amy Steiner saying that the van was filling up with water and then the line crackled and it went dead. And about an hour later, search teams found their van submerged in water about 175 feet from the shore uh, where both women were still in the van where they had drowned. It was an extremely tragic, sad story. But it is something that reminds us that it's really important for you to know what road you're on. And it's crucial for you to know what direction you're heading. And that's true not just when you're behind the wheel of a vehicle. It's true spiritually as well. So this morning, what road are you on? What direction are you headed spiritually? Because you see, your answer to that question has consequences that are eternal. Eternal consequences. And Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 7 that there are two, and only two spiritual paths that are open to us. We're either on the right spiritual path or we're on the wrong spiritual path. And just as was the case with these women, one of those paths is going to take you home and the other path is going to lead you to destruction. Jesus in his grace and his mercy sets the path of life and the path of death before us. He gives us a narrow way and a broad way. So that's what we're going to consider this morning. The passage is found in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them there. Matthew chapter 7, just two verses this morning, verses 13 and 14. So as you find that in your scriptures, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide And the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Thus far, the reading of God's word. 
May he add his blessing to it. You can be seated. Uh, In just these two short verses, there are three things that I want us to look at, three things to consider, three things that we need to hear. We need to hear first that there is a demand. We need to hear second that there's a description, and third that there's a destination. You can look at these two verses and you can see those three things pretty evidently here, a demand, a description, and a destination, but we're going to begin with the demand. Now, in case you don't know, these verses are found in what is commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. The sermon begins in Matthew chapter 5 and ends at the end of chapter 7. And so when we get to these verses here, 13 and 14, we're drawing to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And with these words, Jesus is really calling his hearers and us as his readers to self-examination. He sets before us two different ways. No third category, no third alternative, just two ways. And if you kind of scan down through the rest of the chapter, Jesus also starts talking about two trees that bear two different kinds of fruit, two builders that lay two different kinds or, or build on two different kinds of foundation. But here he's setting before us two paths to call us to self-examination, but he's also demanding that his hearers make a decision. He's demanding that we make a decision. Which road are you going to take? The demand is in verse 13, first word that we, hear, that we come across. Enter, he says. That's a command. That's a call to respond to what Jesus has been saying. And I don't know about you, but one of the dangers I think that I face as a believer is to approach the Christian life like I'm auditing a class. If you've audited a class, I mean, you enjoy the subject matter, you listen to all the lectures, you contemplate all these interesting questions, but you don't actually do any of the required coursework. And see, the problem with approaching the Christian life that way is that we're not called to be mere spectators. We're called to active participation. Jesus is calling us here to respond with a demand He calls us to enter. And one of the other dangers that we have to eliminate is our confusion between earning and effort. These are not the same things. And while it's very clear that the gospel excludes any way for us to earn our salvation, the gospel actually holds out grace that enables us to exert effort. This is why Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 that we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That's a call to effort, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He doesn't tell us to work for our salvation. That would be earning. He's not calling us to earn our salvation. We cannot do that. But we are called to put forth effort. Our spiritual journey requires us to put forth forth maximum effort by the power of the Spirit. See, Jesus' words here are not simply things that we're to intellectually agree with or even to admire They're things to be applied. The commands of Scripture are not virtues to be commended and thought well of. They're directions to be obeyed. Pastor Bob reminded us last week, if you're here to listen to that message, that right doctrine is given to lead us to right living. There's an end and a purpose for right doctrine, and it's right living. The words of Jesus are not meant to merely inform us. They're meant to transform us. Jesus is calling us to respond to his words by putting them into practice. In fact, this is what he says later. If you look down in verse 24 of Matthew 7, listen to what he says. Everyone then who hears these words of mine, he doesn't stop there. That's not enough. 
to hear the words. It's not enough to be an auditor. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, this is the person who's like a wise man who built his house on the rock. They hear the words and do them. You see, there is a demand here to respond to Jesus' words that he said in the Sermon on the Mount, and that word is enter. That's the demand. But what does that mean? What does that mean for you to enter? What does that mean for me to enter? Well, in its most simple basic form, it means at least this. To trust in Jesus alone for your salvation, to repent of your sins and follow him. And following him means you're putting his words into practice. That's what it means. And so what we're confronted with immediately in these verses is this. Have you entered? Are you believing in Jesus and trusting in him alone and resting upon him alone for your salvation this morning? Have you repented of your sins? Are there sins that you need to repent of today? This hour, this minute right now, are there sins that you need to repent of? And are you following Jesus by putting his words into practice? Does your faith and repentance make your life look different than the non-Christians around you? And we can ask ourselves collectively, do we show more grace and more compassion as a church than the world does? Are we quicker to offer forgiveness and slower to judge people? Or are we the opposite? Slower to forgive and quicker to judge. Is it making a difference? Those of you in junior high or high school, are you more committed to the reality of God's truth? Are you more committed to purity? Do you show more courage and boldness in Christ than the unbelievers around you? Students on our Christian campuses, is there less drug abuse and less sexual sin on our Christian campuses and our sexual, or on our secular campuses? I mean, is there really? Are we really putting the words of Jesus into practice as his people? And if we are, why are the divorce rates inside the church not substantially less than divorce rates outside the church? And why do we tend to love those who love us rather than really loving and praying for our enemies? And why do we have a tendency to retaliate to those who insult us the exact same way the world retaliates to insult? Are we really putting these words of Jesus into practice? There is a demand here that we can't miss to enter the way of life and to enter the narrow way. There's not just a demand. There is a description to enter by the narrow gate. So that's the second thing I want us to look at. There's a description now, just, just to remind everyone here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, going back all the way to chapter 5, has called his disciples to be meek, to be pure in heart, to be peacemakers. He's called them to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. He's called them to a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees. He's called us to deal with the root of sin in the heart, not just the external manifestations of anger and lust, but to deal with those things in the heart. He's called us to live a life where our yes is yes and our no is no, where we turn the other cheek, where we give and we pray and we fast in a way that pleases the Father. He's called us to not worry, to not judge, 
to do unto others as we would have them do unto us. That's verse 12, actually, just the, the verse preceding the passage we read. He's, he's called us to all these things. And at one point in the sermon, he even says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's what he says. And so now, when we get to the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, it says if Jesus is summing up all of these things that he's calling us to with this description, the gate is narrow and the way is hard. That's the kind of life he's calling us to in the Sermon on the Mount. The gate is narrow and the way is hard. He's not really pulling any punches here, is he? The way is hard. I would not be saying this if Jesus didn't say it so clearly. That's what he says. The way is hard. And it's hard because we live in a fallen world. A world that is evidenced by being under a curse. And it makes it hard. It means that our spiritual walk is going to be steep. And it's going to be rugged. And it's going to be difficult. I mean, it is really hard to be pure in heart, isn't it? And it's hard to turn the other cheek. And it's hard to not worry. It's hard to love your enemies and pray for them. It's hard to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But it's hard, not just because of the evil around us, it's hard because of the evil within us. Because we're sinful and we're not inclined to do those kinds of things. The way is hard because we're sinful. It's not because God is cruel that the way is hard. In fact, it's loving that God leads us along a path that's hard and difficult for the same reason that it's loving for parents to make their children do things that are hard and difficult. I mean, one of the reasons that we make our children learn to walk is because it's good for them and we love them. The reason that we make them learn to tie their shoes even if they want to quit is because we, is because we love them and we care about them and we want to see them grow and we send them to school for 12 or more years to take hard classes and do hard homework assignments. Why? Because they need this to grow. We care about them. We love them. So we make them do hard things. But it doesn't make them any less than hard. Jesus is saying here that the way is hard. And perhaps you're thinking at this point that this is poor advertisement for Christianity. I mean, to be this blunt is not a way to sell something, right? But, but isn't it good to know from the outset if something's going to be hard? Wouldn't you rather know that? I mean, it's good that we know at the outset for the same reason it's good if someone wants to lose that extra five or 10 or 15 pounds that at the outset it's going to be hard. It's going to require sacrifice and self-denial and pain in order for you to accomplish that. It's good to know that because if you don't go in expecting that, you know what you're going to be tempted to do as soon as you meet difficulty? You're going to be tempted to quit because you're going to conclude that this isn't what I signed up for. This is way harder than I thought it was going to be. I'm done with this. And Jesus never at any point really gives us reason to believe that we can experience or have a discipleship that's devoid of self-denial or sacrifice or suffering or hardship or pain. He never leads us in that direction. He says right here, the way is hard. So why am I so surprised every time I encounter difficulty in my spiritual walk? It's, it's not because we haven't been told that it's going to be difficult. Why are we so surprised? Why do we expect to be airlifted to spiritual heights? Jesus says right here, plainly and clearly, the way is hard. But it's not the only description he gives. 
It's not just that the way is hard. He tells us that the gate is narrow. Why does he tell us that? Why do we get a description of the gate itself, of the entry point? Well, perhaps one of the reasons Jesus is saying the gate is narrow is because we can only enter the path of life through him. That he's the gate, as he says in John 10. That Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and no one can come to the Father except through him, that he says in John 14. There is a narrowness in that. We can only enter life by Jesus. But this description that the gate is narrow also suggests that there are certain things that won't fit through that gate. There are certain things we can't take with us on the narrow way. There are things that we have to leave behind. There's luggage and baggage that we have that's not going to pass through customs on the way to the kingdom of heaven. What, are, what might be some of those things? Well, the gate is too narrow, first and foremost, for your pride and self-righteousness. You can't take that on the way with you. That's got to be checked at the door. You can't take your pride and self-righteousness. From the very outset, you have to abandon any notion that your good works, ability, or knowledge can attain life. And instead, what you have to do is humbly acknowledge that you're a sinner whose only hope is the grace and mercy of God. That's the only hope you have. Not your own works, not your own righteousness, but mercy. And you also have to admit from the very beginning, humbly, that you have no chance of remaining on that narrow path without the power of the Spirit. You can't do it on your own. And those things have to be checked at the door. But not only is the gate too narrow for your pride and self-righteousness, it's also too narrow for your love of the world. You can't love the world and take it through the gate with you. You got to let it go. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to be offensive to the world so that the world hates you. It means you have to let go of any desire of the world's recognition, admiration, approval, or respect. It means you have to be willing to make a break with the world when necessary, with the crowd, with the majority, and go against the stream. You have to be willing to do that. And that might mean that you don't watch certain things that the world watches. It might mean that you don't listen to certain things that the world listens to. It might mean that you don't use certain words that the world uses, that you don't laugh at certain things, that you don't spend your money on certain things, that you don't let your kids own certain things. You have to let that go. It might mean that what you choose to do on the Lord's Day and what you choose not to do on the Lord's Day causes you to become a fool in the eyes of the world, which is going to become a bigger choice, I think, the more we have sponsored and official athletic events on Sunday. What's the church going to do? It also means that in other instances, our views on abortion, our views on sexuality, might mean that the world is going to label you as judgmental, intolerant, hateful, and just plain foolish and outdated. What this means is checking your love of the world at the gate means that you have to be willing to become a fool for Christ in the eyes of the world. You have to be willing to do that. I'm not saying it's going to happen at every turn, but you have to be willing to do that. Are you willing to become a fool for Christ in the eyes of the world? But not only will the love of the world not fit through the narrow gate, your love of sin won't fit either. Your love of sin won't fit either. Following Jesus means you have to be willing to give up every sinful habit, every sinful thought, every sinful act, no matter how cherished, 
no matter how personally private, no matter how much you think it doesn't make a difference, and no matter how deeply ingrained it is, the call is for you to put to death the sins of the flesh. You have to mortify those sins. You have to crucify those sins. That's the call. You can't take those sins with you. And I think, you know, one of the things that, that I struggle with, and you might struggle with it too, is to act like the call is for us to learn to manage our sins well. To manage our sins well. As if we can keep a little bit of our sin, a little bit of our lust, a little bit of our greed, retain our self-centeredness and our laziness and our resentment as long as we keep it under control and it doesn't cause too many problems in my private life or with my relationships. But that's not the call. The call is not for us to learn how to manage our sins well. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 29. In this very Sermon on the Mount, here's what Jesus says. If your right eye causes you to sin, he doesn't say put a patch over it. He doesn't say medicate it. He says tear it out and throw it away. That's how to deal with sin. And he says if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. That's not the language of management. It's the language of mortification. That's what Jesus is calling us to when we deal with sin. So you must be willing to part with every sin and do battle with it every day as a sworn enemy. That doesn't mean that you're going to have instantaneous victory over every sin. It does mean that you'll be involved in that conflict, though, and that the purpose of that conflict will not be to manage the sin so it's not too disruptive. It will be a battle to destroy it, to mortify it so you don't fall into that sin again, ever. It's good to be reminded of the words of the Puritan writer John Owen, who said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That's the truth. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. You can't walk the narrow way and take your sin with you. But not only do we have to leave our sin behind, we have to leave our comfort behind. The gate is too narrow for your comfort. Not meaning that we should always be uncomfortable or in distress in our Christian walk. Simply means if our top priority in, in life is comfort and ease and feeling good, you just can't follow Jesus very faithfully. <laughs> You're just not going to be able to walk that path consistently and faithfully if that's your main priority is to be comfortable. You see, you're in a war. And the top priority of a soldier cannot be his or her comfort if that soldier is going to remain faithful at his or her post. Can't be. You've got, you got to be willing to let go of your comfort. And in a sense, you really have to be willing to let go of yourself. There's a sense in which the gate is too narrow even for yourself, not meaning that you're going to be annihilated, but meaning that you have to be ready and willing to yield your will to the will of God for you. And this means at times you might not just have to crucify your sin, you might have to crucify some of your cherished affections, crucify your dreams, crucify your desires, even if they're not sinful, crucify your plans because they're not God's desires or plans for you. This can be really, really difficult. We all know that. That's really, really hard to let go of our dreams because they're not God's dreams for us and to continue to walk that narrow road. There may even be times that we have to forsake family and friends for the sake of Jesus. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to let these things go to walk the narrow way? 
That's what Jesus is confronting us with here. The gate is narrow, and then the way is hard. That's what Jesus says. So why would anyone go that route? Especially when Jesus actually gives us another description, a description of another gate and a description of another way, where the gate is wide and the way is easy. That's the kind of language I like. That's the path I want, right? This is the Broadway. It's Broadway. Isn't that interesting? Almost every town in the nation has a Broadway because Broadway is the way of the world. It's a hospitable path. It's permissive. It's tolerant. You don't have to give up anything. You can take everything with you. It accepts everything and everyone. You don't have to give up any sin, any comfort, any desire. It all comes in with you. Someone has said that people are apt to prefer an error that leads to prosperity to a truth that leads to affliction. And I have to confess that that's me. I'm apt to prefer an error that leads to prosperity to a truth that leads to affliction. And that's why so many people are on the wide path because we're all inclined to that. That's what we want. So why would anyone not take that path and choose a path that's narrow and hard instead? Well, that's a good question. And in answering it, we have to consider third, that there's a destination. Consider the destination. Proverbs 16.25 tells us that there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. See, the wide gate and the easy way, it's deceptive. Its destination is destruction. You want to know why the wide gate leads to an easy way and why the way is easy? Because it's all downhill. It's all downhill. Isn't it way easier to go downhill than uphill? But you know where downhill leads? To destruction and to hell. The way is easy, but its end is destruction. So where do you want to be headed is the question. You want to be headed toward life or toward destruction? Because if you want to be headed toward life, you have to enter by the narrow gate. There is no other way. So you might be thinking at this point. So Jesus gives us these options. Living hard or dying easy. I don't like either option. Where's, where's the good news at? Where's the gospel in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14? You know what? That is a good question. It's a fair question. Where's the gospel here in what Jesus is saying? Well, as we think about that, one of the things that we have to say is we're just simply confused if we think the gospel is an invitation to live a life of indulgence, ease, and laziness. That's not what the gospel's offering us. The gospel says that we've been delivered from the way that leads to destruction and placed on the path that leads to life. And while that way might be hard, it does lead to life. That's the gospel. And the gospel tells us, in addition to that, that we're enlisted on that way in a conflict between life and death, life and darkness, holiness and sin. But the fact that we're in that conflict, you know what, means you're alive. You're no longer dead in your trespasses and sins. That's what it is to be alive, to be enlisted in that conflict now. That's good news to be a part of that. And we have to remember this as well. The grace offered in the gospel is a grace that not only carries us across the gate so that we can enter, it's a grace that empowers us to fight the good fight of faith. 
That's what the gospel gives to us, not just the grace that we enter into new life, but the power to live a new life. The gospel gives us that same grace. And you know, even that there is a gate is good news for us. That there's a gate that leads to life is good news because we're sinners deserving destruction. And yet Jesus says, there's a gate here and it leads to life. And it's a gate that was forged by the outstretched arms of Jesus on the cross. And that's the only way to enter. The gate is that wide, but it's no wider. To enter into life, you have to go to the cross. That's the only way. It's only through a cross that you enter life, and as you enter, the Jesus who bore a cross for you tells you to take up your cross and follow him. That's the way. It's hard but it leads to life. But it doesn't just lead to life. The destination of the narrow way leads to Jesus himself. That's the good news. It doesn't just lead to life. It leads to Jesus himself who's the treasure of our hearts. If you want to ask the question, why walk the narrow way? Here's the answer. Jesus. That's why you walk the narrow way because that's where Jesus is found. But more than that, that's where Jesus finds you on the narrow way, which means in the midst of your hardship and difficulty, Jesus finds you there. He's with you in the midst of that, and you're never alone on that walk. While the way is hard in a fallen world and we're doing battle with our sin, there's still joy and pleasure on that road that can only be found there. It's a joy and pleasure that we find in fellowship with Jesus. So brothers and sisters, there are two gates before each and every one of us this morning that open up into two paths that lead to two destinations. Which one are you on? Which one are you going to take? I want to leave you, though, with one final consideration, and that's this. Nothing truly glorious is easy in this life. Right? Nothing truly glorious is easy in this life. Marriage isn't easy. It's really, really hard but it's gloriously joyful. Raising kids isn't easy. It's really, really hard, but it's gloriously joyful. I don't know if many of you have tried to win a championship in an athletic event, in a sport, but it isn't easy. It's really, really hard. It demands a lot of sacrifice and pain, but victory is glorious, right? Our deepest joys always involve hard climbs. And that's true of our spiritual journey as well. There is no glory without hardship. But it leads to life and it leads to Jesus. There's a cross before there's a crown. That's true. There is a cross first, but there is a crown. And it's glorious. And it's been purchased for you by the one who walked the narrow way ahead of you forge the way and who secures your arrival. You see, there's no difficulty that you will face that can keep you from safely arriving at home when you're following Jesus on the narrow way. So this morning, enter. Enter by the narrow gate. The way is hard, but there you'll find the open arms of Jesus that will receive you with the fullness of grace, the fullness of mercy, life everlasting, and a love that will not ever let you go. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that through 
the work of Jesus, we might enter life. And we pray, Spirit, that you would enable us with your power to walk the narrow way this week, knowing that we find life and Jesus there, but more that he finds us. Thank you for pursuing us and being committed to our sanctification. Give us power to walk with you on the narrow way this week. In Jesus' name, amen.